Hello, welcome back to the British Food History Podcast. My name is Dr. Neil Buttery, food historian and chef. Today has our absolutely fascinating subject, tinned food, with returning guest, Lindsay Middleton. We heard from her last season talking about invalid cookery. Now, I'm sure you know by now, there'll be a postbag episode at the end of the season, and I want your comments, questions and queries, and I think you're almost guaranteed to have something to say about today's topic, especially with regard to food memories. We all have a relationship with tin foods. Some are great, others perhaps not so great. So, please contact me, email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or leave a comment or send me a DM on Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram and now on threads as well as doctor, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery or post on the new British Food and History Facebook discussion page which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History and please if you haven't already please rate or review the British Food History Podcast preferably with a 5 star rating wherever you get your podcasts so that it moves up the rankings and more people will discover it Every single one counts. If you have family or friends or colleagues who you think might like the podcast, please spread the word. It's obvious that many of you have been doing that already. Thank you, as always, for the support. It's getting increasingly more expensive just to have a podcast and blog these days. So if you want to help a little bit more and support the upkeep of the podcast and blogs by donating a virtual coffee or pint or, in fact, any amount you choose on there, please visit the website, britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support, the blog and podcast tab. All monies go back into making more content. On that very same page, you can become a £3 monthly subscriber. That's about $3.80 in US dollars, where you can get access to premium blog content, a monthly newsletter and my Easter eggs, which are really the darlings that I have to kill to keep the podcast to a reasonable length. There are loads of them now, as well as... A bonus episode from the last season, I'm hoping there will be from this season too, and the mini-season about forgotten foods. And you can also support me by purchasing one of either of my books, Before Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth Raffold, England's Most Influential Housekeeper, or A Dark History of Sugar, both published by Pen and Sword History. The latter of which, the Sugar Book, has been nominated for an award. It's the Guild of Food Writers Award for Best First Book. The ceremony is going to be in September. I will keep you posted about it. There's more news to tell you, but I'll save that for the end. There are some events coming up in September and news of a very long thread of cocktail recipes. Okay, let's get going. I spoke to Lindsay about her research into tinned foods in June 2023 during that heat wave. We talked about what led her to take on this topic, the origins of tinned food, the big sell to the Navy and to the well-to-do housewives the big tinned food scandal and the inherent snobbishness around using tinned foods and many other things. We pack a lot in today. There's also some ad-libbed outbursts from Lindsay's cat soup who really did not appreciate attention being taken away from him when his mum was doing a podcast. It was very cute. I'll be back at the end to tell you about the Easter eggs associated with this episode. But now, tinned food with Lindsay Middleton. Welcome back to the podcast, Lindsay. I hope you're all right. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excellent. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm hot. Yes, me good. too. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yes, slowly melting, but doing okay. Um, before we start talking about canned food in particular, I just thought I'd ask what on earth drew you to this topic? It's one of those very um, almost hiding in plain sight kind of mm. topics. It's so everyday that it doesn't come to mind, if you know what I mean. So exactly. I, I wonder what drew you to that or, or maybe what what made that light bulb go off? Yeah, no, it's a great question. When I started my PhD, I wanted to look at food technologies in the 19th century. And the first one that I wrote about is the gridiron. And that's a sort of square iron grid that you would broil your round chop or your steak on. Um, and I did a whole bunch of research about the gridiron and and it was a food technology that had been in use for hundreds of years by the 19th century. And it had all these really fascinating symbolisms that came out in the recipes and cookbooks that spoke about it. So I, I did this sort of research topic on gridirons. And then I was very interested in the narratives that 19th century food writers were writing about implements or attaching to implements. So I thought, OK, the gridiron is really interesting because it has this long history of associations to that authors could play with. I wonder what happens when there's a technology that's new to the 19th century mm -hmm. that lacks those cultural associations. And that was what drew me to tinned foods. Because tin, yeah, they were they were introduced at the start of the 19th century. And when I started looking at the recipes in the cookbooks, it became very clear that similar kinds of storytelling were happening, but they were very different because the tinned foods lacked meaning. And so people who were writing about them had to almost create meaning around tin foods in order to either sell them or situate them in the British marketplace of the 19th century. So it was that idea of a, a kind of what are people going to do with a new technology, particularly one that's very different from sort of more traditional ways of preserving food. It's funny, isn't it? Because um, the way you were talking about it, then making it sound like some kind of alien thing mm. <laughs> it's it's so every day and, I know. and we're all dependent on canned foods to some degree I mean I like to think that I cook from scratch as much as possible but of course canned things go in the shopping trolley every week it's hard to imagine that people had to be convinced <laughs> it's interesting you know even even people who are like oh no I don't eat tinned foods or like there's still, still a kind of cultural snobbishness around it in some ways probably are eating tin chickpeas or tin tomatoes you know these kind of as you say incredibly day-to-day -day things mm -hmm. that are in all of our cupboards beans and, and tuna tinned fish so I love the idea that as a research topic you hit the nail on the head earlier you know tin foods are so everyday everyone has them in their cupboards but actually looking into the history of them opens up to so many bigger debates and and strange and unusual insights into history um, which you wouldn't expect from the humble Tin. No, but you know, um, I'm sure you found this yourself doing the research. Is that the more the everyday and invisible, mm. the more interesting and convoluted and exciting exactly. the history turns out to be? I exactly. Find. No, I completely agree. And I think for everything that we sort of take for granted today, there was a long process of making it an everyday item. Let's have a look briefly at a pre-canned food world. What were the technologies and techniques that people were depending on to preserve their their foods? I mean, I suppose I'm thinking particularly meat. A lot of preserved meats so would have been salted mm -hmm. um, or potted. So I think that's probably the most comparable. 
to tin foods potted meat where you would have meat that had already been cooked and you would press it down into jars and seal it with clarified butter or fat. So that salting, drying meat as well, or curing things with, you know, smoke or hanging them, things that we still use today. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of these techniques had drawbacks in some ways, either in the way they affected the texture and the taste of the meat. So salted meat that was on ships, for instance, Mm. was so unbelievably salty that it was almost inedible because it had to be salted. That's right. And sugar was left out because sugar was more expensive. And if you take the sugar out of those mixtures, it goes even harder, doesn't it? Yeah. I tried to make um, salt beef with just salt and it was, you could put up shelves with it. (laughs) Yeah. I remember reading an interesting anecdote about how the uh, ships used to dip salted meat in the sea to make it less salty, to wash the salt off. Like that's how bad (laughs) it was. So I can't imagine if you're, you know, sailing across the world with limited fresh water, that's something that you want to be eating. But at the same time, you know, these things have all lived on because we do have canning, we do have freezing and refrigeration. So we don't have to smoke our meat. I suppose to some degree we don't have to can it because refrigeration's so yeah. so cheap but we go back to these things because they taste good they add, they exactly. add an extra uh, dimension to, to that food don't they can you tell us about the origin story of of canning who invented it why, why did they feel the need to in, invent it certainly it's very much linked to the same story we were just touching upon with salted meats mm. and and cured meats and and being on ships so the real driving force behind the first canned and then tinned foods and I differentiate them between them slightly because um, canning is still used in the sort of North American context of preserving things by boiling them in glass jars and that was actually how the process first originated Mm -hmm. but then in in Britain we started tinning them by putting them in, in tin cylinders so initially it was the French Navy who put out a sort of call for we need someone to come up with some sort of preservation technique that is better than what we have because even if if food is on ships even if it's preserved well the length of voyages meant that food would spoil it would get wet there was big nutrition problems with things Mm -hmm. like scurvy sure this was the end of the 18th century start of the 19th century And the first person to kind of crack that technique of boiling things in order to preserve them in a canister, and this was glass bottles initially, was a Frenchman called Nicolas Appert. And he then published on the technique, and very quickly, two men called uh, Brian Donkin and John Hall in Britain got wind of this technique, and what they did was they patented it. So it came from France to Britain very, very quickly, and... It was them, they started working with metal and realised that tin-coated iron cylinders were actually far more durable than French, uh, sorry, than the glass bottles. And if if they're on a ship, you you want them to be durable. You don't Mm -hmm. want things rocking around and smashing in storms. So it was in Britain in 1810, it was a factory in Bermondsey outside of London. Mm -hmm. um, And that was where the first tinned foods were produced. And it was a direct result of Navy needs and indeed, for the first sort of 30, 40, up to 50 years of tin foods being on the market, the Navy were their main customers. I see. So they were the first kind of big time consumers of, of canned food. Yeah. And it was um, Duncan, Gamble and Hall were the first sort of company, but the, the 
technique very quickly disseminated around Britain and also around the world where people in foreign countries like Australia or South America, where there were big stocks of cattle or sheep that up until that point were were kind of being wasted because there wasn't the infrastructure there to deal with them for food. So they were being used, killed for hides, but then the meat was just going to waste. Wow. Um, <laughs> so innovators took the technique there to take advantage of that. So it very quickly spread all over the world. But yes, it was the Navy in the first instance. And there are excellent sort of pamphlets where you can see companies like Duncan Gamble and Hall are sending their tins around the world with Navy captains or they're sending them to the royal family to try and they're getting testimonials. I found a good one in my thesis the other day that it had been Queen Charlotte had tried these tinned foods and I just watched Queen Charlotte on Netflix and it was sort of like, (laughs) hmm, I don't remember her trying tinned foods and I noted it wasn't too long before she died, but I don't think it was related. Correlation is not causation. (laughs) No, exactly. Um, But yeah, so they would send them out with explorers, Navy captains to the royal family, get these testimonials and sort of build a catalogue of positive sales i suppose yeah and people seem to be kind of they're kind of whipping people well not into a frenzy but they were really self-promoting when it's like a, a new like a new dawn in food preservation and uh, and, exactly. and providing for our fighting fighting men around the world exactly and it's interesting looking at those early sales catalogs how they pitch tinned foods now i don't necessarily think of tinned foods meat or vegetables as a fresh food item because they are so preserved Mm. but that was how they were sold and that was what was emphasized it was the freshness Mm. of the vegetables and the meat and that speaks very much to the idea that these were items that had longevity and you know they could be on a ship for months and then be opened and still be fresh rather than vegetables that you would take that would very quickly rot yeah or you would run out of them and then your your crew wouldn't have anything fresh to eat so i suppose for them like we were saying other preserved foods that often add an extra dimension to their flavour, whether mm-hmm. you like it or not. So, so yeah. what they're saying is, we're not even adding an extra dimension. That was that was yeah, their you, UP. You can have your you can have your green peas mm-hmm. ten months into your expedition. And actually, the those early catalogues show an impressive range of different types of tinned foods. So, different sort of made dishes, soups, stews, meats, vegetables. You know, they they were quick to build up a catalogue that would provide i suppose complete food and nutrition to people who needed it now this is all going very swimmingly <laughs> however yes a scandal broke didn't it in the in the it times did newspaper let's go back a couple of months mm. before the times scandal okay. and there's a there's a really nice juxtaposition between that event and gamble who'd taken over from the initial company does a wonderful and very successful display of tinned foods at the Great Exhibition Hmm. in London in 1851. Mm -hmm. So he's there and the newspaper reports that talk about his display talk about the wonderful different ingredients he has. He has familiar tinned foods. He has um, tinned foods that have been to the Arctic and back that he would open in front of you to show that they were still edible. You know, there was a lot of sort of spectacle and display. He also had very quote unquote exotic foreign foods like green turtle fat from the West Indies that had been tinned and brought back over. Mm, Calipash, it's called, I think. Calipash and Calipay, yes. Mm. So um, (laughs) at that point, 1851, 
what Gamble and his competitors are trying to do is break into the domestic market. So they've been very successful with the Navy and they're now turning their attention to housewives, middle and upper class people in Britain who might want these tin foods in their own I see. So that's all gone really well, Mm -hmm. as you say. And then just months later, January 1852, it was the Times newspaper and they broke the news on this expose that happened down in Portsmouth. The Admiralty had been in Portsmouth and they had opened up these tins of foods that were destined to go on Navy ships. And they opened 2,707 tins of meat. Right. So we're talking a vast number. And these weren't the size of tins of meat that we have today. They were much bigger. Oh, okay. And out of those, the Times reported only 197 were fit for human food. Gosh. So... The ratio is not looking great. Was that about 5% um, or something? Yeah. And and the article continues. It says that for the most part, the tins contain pieces of heart and roots of tongue and palates and coagulated blood and liver. And then it, it continues. It says, in short, garbage and putridity in a horrible state. The stench arising from which is the most sickening in the sight right. revolting. So they're really, <laughs> they're not painting an advertising picture here. No. Um, So that was shocking enough as it was. And you can tell from the sort of visceral nature of that description Mm -hmm. that they were really trying to shock people. But then what they did to make it even more shocking was they tied this horrible expose of tinned foods to the Franklin Expedition. Sure. As I'm sure you and, and listeners know, the Franklin Expedition was one of the most covered expeditions at that point in the 19th century, very famously Franklin had left Mm -hmm. in 1845 to go to the Canadian Arctic coast. And the press had been following this very, very closely. In 1850, some bodies had washed up on Beachy Island and things were, people were starting to fear that things hadn't gone well. Mm. So at this point in 1852, what the press did was tie this expose to the Franklin expedition. And, And the Times reporter says, you know, suppose that Franklin and his party have been supplied with tin foods like this you know that might be what's ended them in their hour of need and I think as a lot of media coverage and and the discourses that still go on around the Franklin expedition Mm -hmm. you know in like the terror it's all about the tins and this was the point where the attitude towards tin foods was really poisoned for the British public. I mean I guess it must be so difficult with the technology that they had at the time to make sure absolutely every single can is completely soldered exactly were they using um lead solder to make the cans at this point i'm not sure whether it's a myth or not i've heard that people were poisoned potentially poisoned by lead-based solders but i think lead was always a, a fear but my understanding was is by this point bacteria were not understood in the way that they are today and um, it was beginning to come through with pasteur's theories what they supposed was that if you excluded all the air from the tin that meant that it would be fine. Ah, okay. But actually, because these tins of meat were so big, if they weren't cooked well enough, mm-hmm. the meat in the inside would still be raw. And that would start to go really nasty. Right. So quite often that was what was causing them to actually rot. But it was that kind of germ theory wasn't 
understood at the time. So it'd be things like clostridium and things like that, causing yes. really serious disease, botulism and things like that. Yeah, not, not nice. what you want. No, it's not what you mm. want at all, is it? I mean, I think today they're autoclaved out. There's like so many pressures of water, 130 yeah. degrees. Absolutely everything is 100% yeah. definitely sterile. <laughs> and even now, you know, you get a tin that's been around for a while and it's a bit dented and, uh, you know, the lid's popped up. You're like, oh, not going not gonna to eat that one. <laughs> How on earth did they claw back any kind of confidence? It's it's a really interesting case about how the sort of detractors and the advocates of tin food very much pull upon the same narratives. One side is to condemn them and one side is to sell them, essentially, mm-hmm. or, or reinvoke that confidence. So there's a, a really beautiful example of this in Elizabeth, uh, in Isabel Beaton's Book of Household Management the classic Victorian cookbook. Mm -hmm. She has two mentions of tinned food in the whole cookbook. And one of them is in a sort of paratextual note underneath a recipe for potted beef. Oh, I see. Yeah, beef potted in in the traditional way, clarified butter in a jar. And underneath that in really small type is a note that's called preserved meat for the Navy. Mm. And what Beaton's done is in her typical sort of cut and paste style is she's taken a article from the Lancet, which was the uh, popular medical journal mm-hmm. at the time and now in it, it, it very much decries tinned foods. And she's sort of talking about how it's awful that these foods that are unfit for human consumption are on our ships. You know, they're, they're poisoning our soldiers as they're on the way, their way home. You know, she's very much hitting hard against tin mutton and mm-hmm. beef and, and and the supplies of the Navy kind of pulling into that Portsmouth rhetoric. And then the other mention of tin food is completely different and it's underneath her turtle soup recipe. Uh-huh. And she says, if you can't find fresh turtle or if it's too expensive or if it's not in season, you can buy a tin of turtle for your soup. So it's completely different. And I love the shift between that kind of complete disparagement of tin foods mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, but this exotic, like luxurious ingredient comes in a tin and that's okay. So most as though um, two different people wrote it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I know her editorial skills could have been a bit more consistent there. (laughs) But um, yes, so but I think it's that sort of speaks to how they went on to try and sell tin foods they tapped into things like the luxury market for middle-class sports. So um, you get all these sort of tinned food catalogs turned cookbooks where they're saying, oh, you know, this is great for the the man on his yacht who is yachting around the rivers of Britain. <laughs> and there's a, a lot of recipes that situate tinned foods into picnics, um, sort of but very luxurious middle-class picnics. Mm-hmm. You could buy things called ring dishes, okay. which were sort of, accoutrements to tinned foods which allowed you so you would take your cylinder of tinned meat out of the tin and you'd put it in your ring dish and then there were rings that you could take off as you sliced it which meant you had very even slices of tinned meat that you could then arrange prettily in a salad so you have all these like very dainty luxurious recipes and they were really aiming tinned foods at that kind of mid upper middle class pleasure market meanwhile you have other recipes that people are were still worrying about being poisoned there was then the other side of the coin which was 
people who recognise tin foods as a saviour of Britain's food supply. Because at this point, you know, from the mid-19th century onwards, really, the population of Britain was expanding so much that certainly in terms of meat on Britain, we didn't have enough livestock to feed the population. Mm. So if we could tin meat in places like Australia that had a surplus of meat and sheep and bring it back, that would be a really useful way of, of making sure that everyone had food. But what those sort of social commentators like John Buckmaster and and men of science were really into this. They kind of forgot that actually foods need to be tasty in order to be (laughs) taken up. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth remembering that for your sort of average 19th century housewife of the middle or working classes, to be presented with meat out of a tin or just a tin itself was a fairly daunting thing you know you go from being used to seeing what you're buying smelling it using your senses your sight to be able to ascertain whether it was fresh or rotten or you know whether the butcher had adulterated it or whatever it happened to be to to buying this very anonymous tin and it wasn't until the sort of late 19th century that brands started actually putting sort of attractive labels on tins before that they were all very anonymous so there was a disconnect between the kind of luxurious tins being sold by retailers like Fortnum and Mason mm-hmm. and the big, plain, unappetizing tins. And you see so many recipes where people are trying to deal with the fact that your sort of more standard tin mutton or beef really didn't taste like much because it was so processed by that point that almost all the flavor had gone out of it. Yeah. So all the recipes are like six cloves of garlic, which is a lot of garlic for a Victorian recipe. Yes. Um, six cloves of garlic and all this salt, or or it's a recipe for a casserole that instructs you to only put the tin meat in at the very last minute and warm it through because it's already cooked. So if yeah. you were to cook in the same way, you would end up with just mush. So the recipes show a really interesting, I suppose, journey of people trying to work out what to do with this as a, as a product and a technology. Mm, I suppose it's a big, um, what's the right word? It, it's yet another kind of chasm between us and where our food came from. Suddenly, soups, exactly. you see, we can't see it or smell it or taste it or check yeah. that it's okay. I mean, even if we do trust in it, and, we, and we'd certainly trust in it now. Yeah, I mean, you can, mm. all sorts of things can get in there. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You see horror stories. Mm. Um, But they're still quite quite big at this point. Yes. So that was one of the problems. For a while, tins did remain quite big. You would have more meat in a tin of mutton or beef than would do one sitting, which then sort of left the problem of, okay, now what do we do? Because people realized pretty quickly that if you opened a tin of something and left the food in it, that was a really bad idea because that's when the kind of metal leaching starts to happen. Yes, that was an issue. And and I remember reading one newspaper article that complained about this, like, you know, a typical housewife can't buy it. It it, it sort of suggested that grocers should have tins that they opened and just sold portions Mm -hmm. of a day. Whether that happened or not, I was, I'm not sure. The other issue was the price for a lot, uh, for the majority of the 19th century, tin foods remained a fairly expensive food item, even the sort of more bog standard items. So whilst it was envisioned as being this wonderful, cheap, forward thinking and innovative food supply, it wasn't really getting there yet. Mm -hmm. And it was fine if you could afford a nice, 
a nice tin of veal fricassee or something like that, which did exist, or tin pineapple or tin mm-hmm. whatever it happened to be that was expensive. But the more standard items remained expensive but weren't actually tasty. So the sort of reasons to take them up were were certainly slower if you weren't splashing a lot of cash on them. So at some point, tinned food became used by all. And I guess, as with anything, if everyone's using it, it's suddenly vulgar. <laughs> um, so <laughs> yes. what, what was there any particular tipping point or some event, like, a, I don't know, like maybe the First World War or something that kind of made people uh, make it more popular? Looking back, it seemed like it flipped, but I'm sure it's a slower process than that. Yeah, and actually, I think it maybe didn't even need to flip because even in the 19th century, when you have people like Beaton lauding the tin turtle and discriminating against the other tin stuff, there was a really odd snobbishness around tin food that was inherently linked to class. Mm. And that was basically the people who thought that tin meat or tin foods were good, would be good for the working classes. Some of them got very frustrated with the lack of willingness to take this up as a food so you read some of these sort of social commentators the way that they talk about the working class people not eating tin Mm. foods is horrible they're sort of blaming them for holding back the progress of of britain in terms (laughs) of in terms of innovation and technology one one writer who's based in australia but is very invested in this because the australian market for tin foods was was probably the biggest Mm. one he writes that you know oh they're too busy eating venison in the workhouses and like all this like it's like oh my goodness come on calm down and for some reason i think both that kind of reverse snobbery almost and the connotations of like poison and adulteration and dirtiness Mm. like they clung on to certain types of tin food I would argue in Britain we never really got over the kind of class associations of like tinned cheap tin meat or things like that whereas even now you know there's a there's a big difference between something like corned beef and the cultural associations Mm -hmm. that has versus like a posh tin of Portuguese sardines, which are, you know, very much in Mm -hmm. vogue at the Mm -hmm. moment. Um, And I mean, for good reason, I love them. But yeah, so the class associations have sort of been seeded almost for as long as tin foods have been around. And I think it just depends what kind of tin food you're eating. But in terms of the popularity Really, by the sort of 1890s, 1900s, you're seeing tin foods being coming far more commonplace. They've gotten a bit cheaper, mm. more accessible types of food were, were being put in tins, far more common in green grocers. And certainly with the onset of the war yeah. and things like rationing, that was when things really came into their own. Maybe that association with, with rationing and, and food scarcity also lingers in our memory of tins. I, I found it fascinating when the sort of pandemic kicked off and sales of tin foods went up by something ridiculous it was like 300 percent. Mm. people were panic buying and, and, and returning to this idea of, of a, a tin that could be in a bunker and we would be fine and you could keep it for as long as you needed so maybe there's a sort of association between tins and scarcity that lingers i'm not sure but it's a very interesting sort of cultural phenomenon certainly in britain it seems different from in other countries that are more willing to embrace tins but what kind of tin things are you buying these days? Are you a person who buys them regularly? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I always have like chickpeas and tom- tin tomatoes. I do. I love tinned fish. I actually recently got a tin of fish tattooed on oh, my yeah. arm. I know that. <laughs> I know that the um, 
listeners can't see that, but that was an ode to my research and anchovies, which I just love. And I actually, I love Spam. I love Spam. I only started eating I only started eating it in the last mm. couple of years. I don't, my brothers and my dad were both, were, they were all in the scouts and they swore by it. But um, yeah, I love spam in sort of Korean dishes and things like that. It's really right. In Yorkshire, there's the spam fritter. Spam fritter, yeah. I've never oh, had a spam fritter, but it sounds wonderful. Amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> and imagine. all of your whole month's calories in one meal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You don't need to eat again for two weeks. Exactly. <laughs> I'm definitely chickpeas. I try and cook my beans from from dry, mm. but sometimes life gets in the way. And um, yeah. coconut milk, I suppose, is is mine. Yeah, because I ain't grating a coconut. No way. No, absolutely not. <laughs> no way. And baked beans. You know, you need you need baked beans in your or it's like Heinz tomato soup. As yeah, well. Heinz baked beans. They are the best. Although talking about having people sneak things in, of course, one of the Mm. ingredients you want to get into anything that's made in a factory is, well, is air. I suppose you can't really have air in a can of something because you don't want to trap it in there. But um, water, of course, is the other thing you want to get in Mm -hmm. there. Uh, Have you ever tried a reduced sugar, reduced salt kind of baked beans? I've bought them by accident in the past. Oh, no. It just shows you how little tomato (laughs) is in that tomato sauce. (laughs) <laughs> when yeah, you take the sugar and salt because there's nothing else there to flavor it mm. even with that knowledge i still eat them yeah one of my favorite things that i haven't had in years but when i was little i used to love the tins of beans that came with like little sausages yep. in them yeah they were mm-hmm. excellent mum used to get them for us with like cheese grease i remember having top. tinned ravioli and tinned oh, yeah. uh, macaroni oh, cheese where it's just so soft you don't even have to <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no teeth and i will say every evening after our tea uh, my mum always mm-hmm. had some kind of dessert or pudding or something even if it was just yeah. some tin tin fruit and and tinned carnation milk yeah I always forget how how good tin fruit is I I rarely buy it and then I sort of remember it exists and buy a bunch of it tin pears tin I think pears are good. yeah so, and I like yeah. the little mandarin segments that have somehow mm. magically had their skins removed don't know how yes, to do that but are still perfect I know it's almost time to wrap up. What else, Lindsay, is in store for you? Last time we spoke, you had handed in your PhD, but you, I don't think you'd had mm-hmm. your fiver. No. So no. it's happened. You were a doctor. It has happened. Everyone could yes, see Dr. Old Bowers when you enter a room now, as is law. <laughs> so what next? Yep. So the next step for me is really going to be thinking about turning my thesis into a mm. book, which is really exciting. I will hopefully have that sort of being organized in the next few months i'm also doing some really exciting stuff around the scottish food industry at the moment and how scottish food history can tie into our heritage and and tourism and things like that and then i suppose it'll just be me itching to get onto the next research topic i inherited a very sort of small archive of recipe cuttings and adverts from a friend's grandmother Mm. and they're from the northeast in scotland which is where i'm from um aberdeenshire and i would love to either like blog or or cook my way through them or do something Mm. with them there's some really cool stuff there so i'm very interested in the idea of a sort of an archive of non-archival texts i suppose the things that normally aren't thought of as important enough to get into the libraries i think people are slowly coming around to realizing how important those manuscripts are especially yeah, as people absolutely. are moving away from oh, what the kings and queens ate or whatever and mm. more about what my family would have eaten yeah you know there's were the yeah. things people would definitely eat I and mean, you can buy a copy of mrs beaton but it doesn't mean you're cooking mm-hmm. out of it 
But usually if you've got <laughs> handwritten recipes, the chances are yeah. every recipe in there was being actually being used by a family. So it's more important exactly. in a way than the published exactly. books, I think. I agree. And and even if, you know, I'm like yourself, like a big fan of finding historical cookbooks and secondhand mm-hmm. bookshops, but one of the best things that comes out of them is the sort of recipe clippings that someone's cut out a newspaper and stuck in or or scribbled on the side of a page. Like that's always where the sort of juiciest stuff is I think. Oh well I'm really glad everything's working well and things are going forward. I, I know lots of people when they finish their PhD have a bit of post PhD angst. Thankfully I have been too busy for post PhD angst which I think for me has been great so it's more just now thinking about it. Oh excellent well you'll have to come on and tell us all about your new projects when they're in full flow. Definitely. Thanks very much again for coming on the podcast it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me it's been my pleasure too. Thanks again to Lindsay and to Sue. Such a fascinating topic, I'm sure you'll agree, and I bet you have some opinions and memories to share. What do you think of the posh tinned fish that's going around these days? What were your staples growing up? How is the skin removed from mandarin segments? And are there any other Spam Fritter fans out there? I want to hear about it. Lindsay can be found on social media, on Twitter, at Middleton. And as Lindsay Middleton underscore on Instagram and threads. They're tricky ones to remember, so I've put them in the show notes. Also in there are two links for you if you want to know more. One is Lindsay's paper on the subject of tinned foods given at the Dundee Gastronomy Symposium. It's well worth reading. And there's a link to the BBC Sounds website where you can listen to Lindsay talk more about tinned foods on the Radio 4 show Free Thinking. Don't forget, there's the other episode of the podcast featuring Lindsay about invalid food, if you want to hear more about her excellent research. Okay, there are two Easter eggs that come with this episode. One about that famous and charismatic French chef Alexis Sawyer and what he had to say about tin foods. And the other, which was totally off topic but great fun, a chat about the excellent jottings you find in second-hand cookery books. Right, news. I have some events lined up. The first is a talk about Elizabeth Raffold at Manchester Central Library. It's on the 13th of September at 6pm. It's a free event and anyone can come, but you do have to book. I've left a link to it in the show notes. What's particularly exciting about it, well, for me, really, is first it's where I did the majority of the research for the book before Mrs Beaton. But also the library will be bringing out their collection of raffled artefacts and manuscripts to view as part of the event. So it's not to be missed if you are in Manchester in September. I'm also appearing in two festivals in September. I'm at the Ludlow Food Festival on the 10th, which is a Sunday at 2.30pm, talking about all things Elizabeth Raffled. But I'm also talking at the Chelsea History Festival on Friday the 29th, at 6pm and that's one about the history of sugar links to those festivals are in the show notes as well of course don't forget my books before mrs beaton and now top award nominated a dark history of sugar are available wherever you buy your books also and i keep forgetting to mention this so apologies if you are a cocktail fan i have been tweeting a very long thread now of cocktail recipes some have been excellent Most have been good. Mm, A few have been not so good. It's been a great learning curve. At time of recording, the 
128th recipe was posted, one for a cheeky tequila number called El Diablo. It was one of the good ones. I've left a link to that tweet, so you can visit it and travel up and down it and see what else I've made. Don't forget to send me your material for the upcoming postbag episode. Remember my social media, Twitter, at Neil Buttery, Instagram and threads, Doctor, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery, or find my Facebook discussion page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. Or, of course, contact me directly via email, neil at britishfoodhistory.com. All right, it's time to go. Please have a wonderful week, and I shall see you for the next episode of the British Food History Podcast. Cheerio. Cheerio.